Welcome, happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome, each and every one of you, happy warrior that you are, somebody who recognizes that the challenges of life, whether it's taking care of a family or building a family, or whether it's taking care of a job or building a business, or whether it is maintaining family connections and social connections, all of these things are tasks. They are unrelenting tasks. And these are the tasks that a happy warrior undertakes every single day of our lives with joy and with enthusiasm. We undertake these jobs with optimism and confidence and passion because we realize that the only alternative, the only time when relaxation is really available and that all we have to do is just hang out, well, actually, that's in the grave. But until then, we find happiness and fulfillment in dealing with everything that has to be done, weeding the garden in every way that that can mean, pulling the weeds out of the garden so the flowers and the vegetables can grow. All of that unrelenting job, that's the sort of world we live in. We have to be doing these things, but we don't do them with a long face and a whine and a grumble. We do them with joy. We do them with happiness because we are happy warriors. I'll tell you something else about the happy warriors that I've had the privilege of meeting over the years. Happy warriors are people capable of growth. Happy warriors are people who do not condemn themselves to perpetual stagnation. Happy warriors are people who are capable of listening to new ideas. Happy warriors are people who are capable of listening to ideas with which they instinctively disagree but they can still listen to them, evaluate them, and then decide whether there is value to those ideas or not. And so, in many ways, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works, well, it's a refuge, is it not? It's a, a refuge from the noisy world out there where every time you turn on a a radio or a television, every time you open your newspaper, what you hear are words and words and words, but they're words that come from the belly, not the brain. They're words that emanate from the speaker's insides rather than his intellect. The words you hear for the most part, arise from the great gusts of the gut rather than from the calm currents of the cranium. It is a world of the deluded, the deceptive, and the destructive. But here, every week, together with me, we find a refuge, and we're able to banish the crooks and the clowns, the creeps and the cranks, and find ourselves 
in a virtual community of like-minded happy warriors where we can explore ideas that are true, where we can explore ultimate values, and we can understand the permanent principles of life. Now, on our Facebook page, we have a Facebook page, Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. On that page, a friend of ours, Cesar Rodriguez Medina, um, posted a, the results of a poll done by the American Jewish Committee. And on this uh, poll pub, uh, that, that Cesar Rodriguez Medina placed on Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin Facebook page, um, the American Jewish Committee revealed the result of their study, which is that 75% of American Jews intend voting for Joe Biden in the forthcoming American election. Now, I'm recording this just past 10 days prior to the election, and normally I always make this show about the things you all really care about, family, finance, faith, friendships, and health, physical fitness. Politics is something else entirely, and so it's not often that I do discuss politics. However, understanding how the world really works means understanding all the permanent principles. And when you understand them, you can apply them to many different kinds of perplexing problems. For instance, look, let's imagine I could teach you that when anything is placed into a fluid, that is like, you know, water or air, um, and this thing we're placing into the fluid weighs less than the weight of that fluid would weigh whose space it is being taken up by whatever it is I'm putting in. It will float, otherwise it'll sink. All right, let me say that again. If you place anything into a fluid, and that thing weighs less than the weight of the fluid who's being replaced by this thing, that thing will float, otherwise it'll sink. That's the permanent principle. That simple permanent principle explains so many things. And so when I, let's imagine at the beginning of a lecture, I say, I want to talk about the permanent principle, which is that anything that weighs less than the amount of fluid it displaces will float in that fluid, otherwise it'll sink. You don't know where I'm going from here. I could be starting to talk about helium party balloons, because helium party balloons are filled with helium, which weighs quite a bit less than the air that would have filled the space now occupied by the balloon. Hence, the balloon floats and goes upwards. So maybe that's what I'm going to be talking about. Or maybe that introduction about that permanent principle was really the introduction to a lecture on airships, which are like huge helium balloons, excepting that originally they were filled with hydrogen, which is even lighter than helium. 
and I could tell you about the Hindenburg, the great German Zeppelin, uh, that tragically exploded in May 1937 in Lakehurst, New Jersey, as it was coming in for a landing, and that uh, that killed 36 people and pretty much put an end to the era of the airship. Or maybe I was really only giving an introduction to a lecture about why oil floats on water. And maybe this is a cooking lecture, and I want to explain how certain cooking recipes are worded. Uh, For instance, imagine a vinaigrette dressing for a salad, shall we say. And let's imagine that this one is made of olive oil and lemon juice, lemon juice mostly water, and uh, it's got to be mixed in a certain way in order to correctly form an emulsion, because the oil is going to float on the water. You know why? Because of the way I started this lecture. That oil weighs less than the water whose space it is now occupying. That's why the oil floats on the water. And so we have to take very specific steps to blend it with the lemon juice in order to make this vinaigrette. Or maybe this lecture is really an introduction to why a piece of wood floats. Uh, Or maybe it's a lecture on how to manufacture plastic surfboards that also need to float in a certain way. All of these things could follow on from the statement of the permanent principle. Or how about this? Here's an interesting one. Uh, This is what the lecture could be about. Having told you about that principle... I can now demonstrate that if I take a a block of lead, let's imagine uh, a block of lead about the size of your computer mouse, and uh, you drop it into a bowl of water, watch, it just plummets right down to the bottom of the bowl. But if we now warm up that block of lead so as it becomes a little malleable, and right in front of your astonished eyes, I hammer that block of lead till it is now the shape of a large shallow saucer. Now, this lead saucer weighs exactly the same as the lead block. But now when we place this in the bowl, it floats. How strange. What's going on? How is that possible? The lead is the same lead. I've just reshaped it differently. And in one case, it sank, and in the other, it floats. So that could be what I'm talking about. Um, Or I could discuss, having told you the principle of uh, why things float in a fluid, we could go on to talk about how long an Airbus airliner that lands in a river will float before sinking. Will it be long enough for everybody to get out? Um, Or maybe... Maybe it's actually a medical lecture, and we're going to talk about the emergency health consequences of an air bubble forming and traveling in a person's blood vessel, and then it becomes an arterial air embolism and so on. But the principles of that air bubble we've covered in this permanent principle I stated. And, um, and this is just a bunch of things, but there are many other of life's experiences that can be fully explained by my 30-word permanent principle about placing objects into fluids. That is a physical permanent principle. 
and there are very many of them. You would be studying physics and chemistry to get your arms around a whole bunch of them. But there are also spiritual permanent principles. Now, sometimes they're called things like sociology, they're called things like psychology, they're called things like gender studies. All of these so-called studies are attempts to fit observable phenomena into a world that the academic community of professors in their kindergartens refuse to acknowledge as having any spiritual dimensions. And so we can discuss very real, practical, applicable, spiritual permanent principles having to do with gatherings of people and having to do with uh, uh, instinctive behaviors and we're talking about male and female interactions. And these would all be spiritual permanent principles that would be fascinating for you to know because all of a sudden, things that appeared baffling, things you sometimes scratched your head about and wondered, why does this happen? Well, all of a sudden, you'd have the tools for explaining it in exactly the same way that the permanent principle about putting an object into a fluid explains airships and blood embolisms and all kinds of, because a permanent principle has widespread application around our practical world. And so uh, in the secular academic world, which for a hundred years now, a little less maybe, has been trying to find a way to explain everything in the world without God. That's the goal, to come up with a godless explanation for all of reality. And they uh, sometimes reach in very contorted ways. It's almost like trying to scratch their uh, left ear with their right hand wound around the back of their neck. It's all very contorted. Uh, but there is a reason that the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. For those of you interested, um, it is the final verse of Psalm number 111. And in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bible, which you can look at on our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the uh, store section and look for the Bible. Uh, on page 1935, you have the words that uh, in Hebrew read, Reshit Chochmah. Yurat Hashem, the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew language, the word fear is the same as the word seeing. And if you think about that, you'll see there, there's some pretty obvious reasons for that. But what's really interesting is that uh, it's in this context doesn't just mean the fear of the Lord. What it's really saying is the beginning of all wisdom is seeing God. 
In other words, understanding how the world works so clearly that God's presence is no longer a matter of belief, but it's a matter of observation. In the same way that after extensive study of the physics and the chemistry involved, uh, I might say I can tell you that with perfect confidence, I can tell you that the sun will rise at 7.27 a.m. tomorrow morning. And somebody listening to me says, you know, Rabbi Lappin, I really admire your belief and your faith. I say, what are you talking about? It's not it's nothing to do with faith or belief. Well, you know, I mean, how can you, you know, something that hasn't happened yet and you think it's going to happen. No, I don't think it's going to happen. I know it is going to happen tomorrow. And for many people, that's a difficult jump to make. And so in the same way, uh, the key thing that King David is mentioning in Psalm number 111, last verse, is not that we are supposed to believe in God, is that we're supposed to understand how the world works so clearly that we actually see God. That's a different thing altogether, isn't it? But it's it's really important. And obviously, uh, the vision of reality that is taught in the public universities around the world today, what I call the kindergartens because of the way the poor little snowflakes are being taken care of there, uh, the, the, the worldview is of necessity flawed. And so not surprisingly, the people who are fully imbued with that particular secular academic worldview Uh, do not have, for the most part, the most successful lives in real terms, financially, family-wise, friendship-wise, all of these things that, that would normally come from having a clear understanding of truly how the world works. Well, you know, it's, it's exactly like, uh, let's imagine there was a school dedicated to the studies of the German philosopher uh, Nietzsche or Schopenhauer or uh, Hegel. It doesn't really much matter. And you'd, would you not judge the value of the philosopher by what kind of lives the people live? That's, that's what I would do. And so, uh, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, what do you know about Islamic theology? I don't know anything about Islamic theology. I also don't know anything about uh, the theology of the Latter-day Saints. However, if you ask me, would I like to live in a village surrounded by members of the LDS Church, or would I like to live in a village surrounded by the inhabitants of Ramla in, uh, in, uh, uh, in Palestine? No. Or in Israel? Uh, no. I, it's, it's a clear thing. It has nothing to do with theology. I just look at the kind of lifestyle it produces. I simply look at how the devotees of that belief system live. And so in the same way, I think that it's a very reliable way 
to judge a, a worldview, which is just a fancy word for a philosophy, which is a, another fancy word. Uh, it's perfectly legitimate to judge a worldview on the basis of the lifestyles of the people who adhere to that worldview. And so on that basis, it's really rather comical to watch secular academia try to find a way to compress all the observable phenomena in our world around us into a secular academic uh, matrix to try and make all this make sense without God involved at all. It's really not easy. Now, let me give you a spiritual rule as an example, right? We've been talking about physical rules. There's a spiritual permanent principle that men and women are very different in many different ways. Now, I could break this axiom down and turn it into 12 uh, separate permanent principles, the 12 ways in which men and women are different from one another. But it doesn't matter. Here we've got a permanent principle that is spiritual. What do I mean by that? Aren't men and women different from one another biologically? Of course they are. Of course they are, but do those biological differences mean that a woman cannot work a pneumatic hammer breaking up concrete? Of course she can. Does it mean a man cannot, his, because of his physical and biological differences, he's incapable of taking two children for a walk to the park? No, of course not. So, the physical and biological differences between men and women are simple. They are what they are. But the really profound differences, well, those are spiritual. And so, for instance, you know, what do I mean by that in a way that is, is not physical but spiritual? There was a question that Jacob's son Judah asked his daughter-in-law Tamar, whom he didn't recognize as his daughter-in-law. Right. And he said to her, he, he met her on the, uh, on the road. She was sitting by the side of the road. And he said in, uh, in um, at Genesis chapter 38, verse 16, and if you are fortunate enough to be able to use the same Bible that I use, it's on page 119, three lines from the top. And uh, in my recommended Bible, uh, Judah says to Tamar, whom he didn't recognize, he says, can I come into you? Right, very literal, very specific. And, um, and so now let's imagine that question that Judah asked Tamar. By, by the way, she, of course, said, you know, what will you give me? Because she was posing um, as that particular kind of woman. But if, let's imagine that um, a, you, you conduct an experiment and a man, let's say an average looking, you know, perfectly presentable, nice looking guy goes up to a hundred women at random, walks up to them in the street, on, on, on a campus, in a, in a wherever, and he says, um, could I come into you? Or perhaps uses a more colloquial term. 
what would the overwhelming majority of the women say, if not all of them? They'd all say, no, what do you think I am? Well, with Tamar, it wasn't a problem because that's what she was posing for, as he, <laughs> obviously. Now let's imagine the reverse. A woman conducting a test, perfectly nice, presentable-looking woman, and she goes up to a hundred different men and makes the offer to them. What would the men say? They'd say, yes, of course. How about now? This is a huge difference between two different kinds of human beings that secular academia tries to persuade us is exactly the same. This is a huge difference. That, per that permanent principle of the difference between men and women that we've discussed, that permanent principle explains many real-life phenomena. Uh, for instance, most couples still get engaged when the man asks the woman to marry him. Even after 50 years of uh, sexual equality and egalitarian equivalence, you would have thought that at least 50% of the marriages you know came about because the woman proposed to the man. And the woman went down on one knee and held out a Rolex watch to the guy and said, please accept this watch and marry me and make me the happiest woman in Western civilization. Doesn't happen because of the permanent principle we're talking about. Or uh, many, uh, many, many of the most uh, prominent and predictable stress lines in marriage. Yeah, you can't possibly be an effective counselor to a married couple if you don't understand that permanent principle. Or uh, even something, here's an, an observable phenomenon. Um, there's a 33-year-old classical pianist, Yu Jia Wang. She's extraordinarily good on the piano. And she typically strides across the stage in front of the orchestra towards a large grand piano, and she's very often dressed in, in what is basically a shoulder-bearing one-piece swimsuit. I'm serious. It's true. She does, and six-inch heels. And then she sits down at the piano, and at least 50% of the people in the audience totally forget what she looks like and just are bathed in the magic of her music. But um, why is it that, um, that she does that? But everybody knows that um, uh, Gregory Sokolov, perhaps, I think, maybe one of the greatest male pianists in the world, sometimes called Grisha Sokolov, uh, or another one, uh, Kirill Gerstein, another amazing male pianist. Um, I can tell you with great reliability that you will not see either of them walk across the stage to take their seat at the piano in front of a philharmonic orchestra in a bathing suit. I'll tell you something else. Um, Grisha Sokolov or Kirill Gerstein aren't even going to show up to play the piano in a pair of short pants and a T-shirt and a pair of sandals. Not going to happen. Will not happen. But foolish and easily deceived people insist that men and women are exactly the same. But my seven-word permanent principle about men and women explains exactly 
why Yu Jia Wang performs in very skin-bearing outfits, just as Anastasia Hupman does, and just as Lola Astanova does, two other beautiful pianists in every sense of the word, uh, and Kirill Gerstein and all the other male pianists wouldn't dream of doing that. That's a fundamental difference. Of course, secular academicians will explain it just as a function of biological determinism, uh, meaning as if these world-famous female pianists who are at the peaks of their careers, well, they're actually trying to attract men to impregnate them. Come on, really? Um, I just find it hard to express authentic admiration for an academician who blind to reality unfolding around him and utterly intoxicated by politically correct anti-religious thinking, insists on misleading his students at the kindergarten about such very important matters, for which perfectly provable and demonstrably true spiritual explanations exist. But no, we've got to contort ourselves to come up with an explanation for why most marriages come about when the man proposes, and why female pianists dress provocatively where male pianists do not. It's very easy to explain as long as you understand the first two chapters of Genesis. But if you're determined to exclude anything spiritual, (laughs) well, you're going to look ridiculous. And that's exactly where we've come to uh, in the world of secular academia, and um, and it is. I mean, universities today have become laughing stocks because of what goes on. In exactly the same way, my friends, you happy warriors that I'm so proud to be a part of, there are permanent principles that explain what we see happening in politics, especially when we remember that politics is nothing other than the practical application of our most deeply held moral principles. That's right. Extracting confiscatory rates of taxation from a hard-working family in Kansas in order to underwrite multi-generational dysfunction in the city of New York Look, that's somebody's moral value. It's not mine, but it is somebody's. All of politics is nothing other than the practical application of people's most deeply held values. So, don't be surprised that there are profound, permanent principles that explain politics as well. But let me tell you, a little bit about my backstory. I've never spoken about this on on this show, and this is just for you, okay? Just for you and maybe a few hundred thousand of our other happy warriors' closest friends, but this is not for wide publication. Uh, I was the rabbi of a absolutely wonderful synagogue that I had the privilege of planting with a man who was is really one of the truest friends that anyone can be privileged to have. Um, he's a guy called Michael Medved. 
And one winter's day in Los Angeles, we were walking along the oceanfront, talking about so many different things, uh, discussing our common Jewish heritage, what that meant. And uh, we came up with a bold, audacious idea, and that was start a congregation for other young people who felt the way we felt. And we did exactly that. And uh, it really became a function of of both of us. Um, I providing the the biblical teachings and the the rulings of Jewish law that that governed matters of, of marriage and divorce and all the other things that go on in a busy, active congregation of younger people. Uh, and Michael Medved provided the the social structure and the warmth and the connection and the vision and also the courage. And uh, pretty soon, Michael's father, who was an extraordinary man, uh, a giant of a human being, he became part of the congregation. And then uh, two of Michael's brothers became part of the congregation. It was all pretty amazing. And I had the privilege of serving this congregation for about 15 years. Um, Fairly early on, about uh, probably after about a year of the congregation's um, first year's meteoric growth, uh, it it became a uh, a phenomenon in Jewish Los Angeles. Um, it became later on the synagogue where Barbara Streisand and her husband Elliot Gould uh, decided to have their son Jason uh, experience his bar mitzvah. So there were a lot of uh, exciting and wonderful <laughs> events that took place. But um, why why am I telling you this backstory? Because It was towards the end of this 15-year period, probably year 13, 14, beginning of 15, that I began to become aware that American Jewish organizations were on the anti-biblical side of every contentious issue in America at the time. For instance, I was horrified when I discovered that there were 13 religious organizations pushing for an expanded abortion agenda, and out of the 13, 11 were Jewish. One was Episcopalian, one was Methodist, uh, but 11 out of the 13 organizations pushing for abortion were Jewish. I couldn't understand this. I was completely baffled because the Bible is pretty clear. So what was going on? And uh, the answer began to become clearer and clearer. And um, as it became clearer and clearer, it also became clearer and clearer to, at this, by this point, Susan Lapp and my wife and me, that we were going to have to retire from this beautiful congregation of lovely people, our very best friends, and uh, we were going to start the American Alliance of Jews and Christians because we were so intensely bothered by the fact that people, 
who were marching beneath the banner of Judaism, people who were the heirs of those who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai 3,332 years ago and accepted the Ten Commandments, those people are now pushing for every possible abolition of those biblical values and their replacement by the values of secular modernism. It was it was very difficult. Uh, I, I began to uh, become more involved with the larger Jewish community. Up till then, I had enjoyed this beautiful refuge. Right? A little bit, in a way, for me, uh, a similar feeling is conjured up in this refuge of happy warriors. But in those days, it was a refuge for Susan and me. It was a place in which we were able to start our family and raise our children just the way our friends were raising theirs, and we were able to start a parochial school where our children started off in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, and the worldview these children were being given uh, was completely consistent and coherent with the biblical worldview our own children were being given. And so it was this beautiful refuge, by the way, I should tell you that last Wednesday night, I participated in the officiating of a marriage in New Jersey of the daughter of a couple whom Susan and I introduced 27 years ago and whom I stood before under a chuppah and married this wonderful couple, an extraordinary man and woman, and 27 years have gone by, and last Wednesday night I participated in the wedding of their daughter, who is still as true to the words of Scripture as her parents were when they got married. And I, I just I tell you this to give you a sense of the emotional connection that I had uh, with these extraordinary people, and um, with the uh, with with how sad we were, we, how sad we were uh, to have to leave. Listen to these words; they appear on the title page of the first book I ever wrote. The book was called America's Real War. And after many years of being out of print, uh, it is now again available. And I'll tell you more about that. What's interesting about this book is that it is filled with the spiritual permanent principles that I've been talking about. And therefore, it is as valid and as true and as revelatory today as it was when I wrote it 20 years ago. It's extraordinary. It shines a laser beam of clarity onto today's headlines, even though the book is not new, because it is a book about permanent principles, not sociology, not psychology, not gender studies, God's permanent principles that really explain what's going on. Listen to the dedication I said here. Um, 
we also well we also dedicate this book meaning susan and me to the congregation of pacific jewish center in los angeles california which we were privileged to serve for 15 wonderful years and where the ideas expressed herein were germinated so um this this book had a very uh was rooted in a very um real inter interplay between biblical rules and human habitation in other words um you could say that our congregation in los angeles turned out to be a living laboratory of biblical permanent principles of human society um by the way i also wrote um susan and i gratefully dedicate this book to the late rabbi abraham chaim lapin May his saintly memory be blessed, who as my teacher and father equipped me to be able to write this book, and to my late mother, Rebertson Maisie Lappin of blessed memory, whose legacy of courage made me actually do so. And and that was a very heartfelt and true thing. Uh, my mother was an audacious and brave woman, uh, and I don't think without her, uh, without her background in me, I, I don't know if I would have been able to do which I, I find a very hard thing to do which is write a book it doesn't come automatically and easily to me at all um all talking about uh talking about my friend michael medved i have seen him write i've seen him write a book and he's the most remarkable writer and he writes remarkable books uh, he sits at the computer and prose flows out. He doesn't need to edit it, doesn't need to be cleaned up. Very, very different from the agonizing process that I undergo in the ordeal of, of writing a book. You know, once I'm reading you um, uh, uh, thanks and acknowledgments, I'll read you the final one I wrote uh, for this book, which brings me to Susan. This book is as much a product of our collaboration as are our children, for she and I have brought these ideas into being together as surely as our children are also the fruit of our unity. We write together, we home-build together, we child-raise together, why, we even boat and vote together. Although no word of this volume was sent to the publisher until we both agreed. To the extent you do find fault, I can assure you it will be with those passages on which she yielded to me. It, was make, it would make as little sense for me to thank her for her help in this book as it would make for a left leg to thank a right leg for its help in crossing a street. This is our book. In humble gratitude to God, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, Mercer Island, Washington, December 1998. And that is the book, America's Real War. And so there I was becoming aware that this idealistic small congregation of young Jews devoted to trying to build a biblically guided community was really an anomaly. And it was really not in any way reflective of what was going on in the larger Jewish community. And that in reality, there was a tremendous clash 
between what we were doing and what the larger Jewish community was doing. You see, the title America's Real War for this book kind of was, was almost a natural. And so I, um, I, I started looking at uh, what was going on. One of the things I looked at was Reform Judaism. And I looked at the statements of Reform Judaism, and they read as follows. Reform Judaism, they haven't changed, by the way. I mean, this is, this is what I read back then. It's what I read today. Reform Judaism is welcoming of transgender people, allows for the ordination of transgender rabbis, and encourages its communities to become fully inclusive of transgender individuals. By the way, homosexuality was a bridge crossed uh, 20 years ago already, as far as the reform movement is concerned. Continuing on, Reform Judaism advocates for social justice and legislative priorities in D.C. and advocates for the full inclusion and equality of transgender individuals under the law. Reform movement um, has taken steps over the past decade to become more inclusive of transgender and gender non-conforming individuals. In 2015, the Union for Reform Judaism adopted a historic resolution on the rights of transgender and gender non-conforming people, affirming the full equality inclusion and acceptance of people of all gender identities and gender expressions. In 1996 and 1997, Reform Judaism adopted resolutions in support of civil marriage for same-sex couples. In 2000, the Reform Conference of American Rabbis gave its full support to reform rabbis who choose to officiate same-sex marriages. The relationship of a Jewish same-gender couple is worthy of affirmation. The diversity of opinions within our ranks on this issue is fine. Um, The conference gives support for those who choose to officiate at rituals of union for same-gender couples. LGBTQ rabbis and cantors are ordained in the reform movement. LGBTQ, transgender, queer. I don't even know what some of these things mean, but this has now become uh, a thing, right? LGBTQ rabbis and cantors are ordained in the reform movement and are accepted as students at reform seminaries. Uh, The history of inclusion dates to 1990 when the Central Conference of American Rabbis endorsed the homosexuality and the rabbinate rules that included all rabbis, regardless of sexual orientation, should have the opportunity to fulfill the sacred vocation they have chosen. So, you know, there it was, I, I began to realize that there is this whole huge population of reform Judaism which not only did not adhere to the rules of the Torah, not only did not regard the Torah as in any way God's words binding and fault-free, on the contrary, they were engaged in constantly undermining, negating, and contradicting biblical rules. And so there I was, realizing that I must be coming to the end of that phase of my life, working exclusively within the Jewish community, 
because I began to see the tremendous damage that was being inflicted on American society by people who were using the moral authority of Judaism. They were marching beneath a 3,000-year-old banner and yet using that to undermine the values that made America the beacon of freedom and prosperity that it became. I was horrified that the heirs of the people who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai were now publicly advocating for public acceptance of behavior, well, behavior that God seemed to treat pretty clearly. Right? Compassion for everybody, but very much the idea, and this is again uh, a biblical principle I've discussed before, which is that homosexuality is not an identity. It is a behavior. The Bible utterly rejects the notion that anybody is born a homosexual and completely incapable of changing. And if indeed it was true that people were incapable of changing, then there would not be so many states around the United States in which it has been made illegal for therapists to engage in helping people transition out of homosexual behavior. If it was impossible to do, it wouldn't be illegal, right? There's no, uh, there's no laws making it illegal to flap your hands and fly faster than 50 miles an hour in within a city limit. Right? We don't make laws about things that are impossible. And so uh, um, I started speaking out about this. You can imagine this didn't make me popular in these structures of the organized community that had abandoned the faith of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and in its place adopted the dogmas of the Democratic Party. Uh, not only didn't it make me popular, but uh, I became <laughs> I mean, uh, an enemy within that part of the Jewish community. Uh, my children were attacked and assaulted. Uh, the um, uh, anonymous mail we used to get, uh, threatening and horrifying, very often with Hebrew words on it, uh, and so all this going on, and none of my Christian friends were aware that, that all this is happening. But meanwhile, um, Susan and I had made of ourselves the enemies of the organized left-wing Jewish community. All right, so let's take a look at some numbers now so you can understand what's going on. Um, there are roughly, and again, these numbers are always difficult to, to nail down, but an accepted number is about 3 million Sunni Muslims in the United States of America and maybe uh, between half a million and a million Shiites, say say three quarters of a million. So maybe um, three and three quarter million Muslims in the United States. A uh, number of Jews actually kind of about the same, about three and a half million Jews. But it's very hard to know. There's never been a census, so how do they ever come up with numbers? Well, they go on surveys and polls, and you remember telephone books? Uh, they used to do telephone book calculations of Jewish-sounding last names. 
and they would tell you, well, maybe that's the number of uh, Jews in that in that city. And they use these various uh, ways of coming up with the numbers. Well, you might say, well, how about if we restricted the count to Jews who stood up when all Americans are asked, please stand up if you are Jewish? How many Jews would stand up? In other words, this is now no longer a matter of statistical calculations. Well, we, you know, sharpen our pencil, hold our wet finger up in the air. Oh, counting only those Jews who would willingly identify themselves as Jews. The figure comes down to much closer than, to to about 2 million, you know, somewhere there. I'm not going to say 2.1 million because we're not operating with that level of precision. Nobody really knows. But uh, what we do know is that about 30% of Jews have zero affiliation, nothing at all. Um, so if we go with that 3.4, 3.5 million figure, and we say, okay, 30% of them are people who clearly, you know, you can yell all you like, well, you're Jewish, but you can't make people Jewish who don't want to be Jewish. And obviously, a lot of people with Jewish ancestry want absolutely nothing to do with this. Uh, for instance, 20, 20, in surveys, 22% of Jews uh, say they have no religion, don't want a religion. Um, Jews, people who identify as Jews, have the highest proportion of self-declared atheists over any other group of people. So, um, uh, 36% of Jews that are married to are married to a non-Jewish spouse and their kids are not being raised as Jewish. So to count them as Jewish when they themselves um, are, pre are saying, you know, this is really not a major issue with us, you'd think um, all Jews visit Israel, right? Uh, the total percentage of Jews that have actually visited Israel is about 40%. So, um, so the truth is that there's about 2 million, probably about 2 million Jews in terms of, you know, people who actually would say, yeah, I'm Jewish. I, I don't care much about the religion. I don't go to Israel, but, but yeah, I'm Jewish. That would, so it's really a, a fairly small number compared to the numbers you'll hear battered around. People, well, there's five million. It's complete nonsense. And these numbers are just manufactured out of whole cloth in order to hopefully um, achieve a little more political influence. In other words, if you claim to be the representative of five million Jewish voters, um, you know, some stupid politician might listen to you. But uh, but if you say, well, you know what, there's, there's about two million of us, and the truth is about the only single question we all agree on is that Hitler was a very bad man, uh, you know, exactly how much influence do you have at that point? But it doesn't really matter because... For the vast majority of these people, so we're saying 20, you know, about 2 million people, three quarters of them, 75% of them, uh, as I told you in the American Jewish Committee survey, are voting for Joe Biden, about 1.5 million. That leaves the remaining 500,000. Who are they? So this first group, they've abandoned the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have adopted 
as I say, the value system of the Democratic Party, indistinguishable. That's, that's you know, social action and uh, social justice and etc., etc. all of that. But there is no biblical, godly, or religious connection at all. But how about the remaining half a million? What about them? So those would be people who take the Torah seriously. They would be observant. Uh, they would be people who only eat food that is kosher. That means only certain animals. It means um, animals slaughtered according to a very strict code. Uh, it means not eating cheeseburgers, in other words, uh, not eating a meal in which dairy products and meat products are mixed, um, not having shellfish and certain bottom feeders in of, of uh of uh, seafood and um, of these 500,000 the majority of if not all of them would be uh, pretty much adhering to the laws of kosher Uh, of the other three quarters the other 75 percent no not at all Um, what else does it mean means they uh, probably do not drive cars on Saturday on the Sabbath they probably do not turn on their computers or use their cell phones on Saturday Um, in other words they they take uh, the Lord's Day they take the uh, the seventh day Shabbat seriously and uh, and that is the dichotomy in the American Jewish community about three quarters Um, believe in the values of the Democratic Party, but they still identify as Jewish. And some of them will even tell you, I'm proud to be Jewish, but they'll also say, uh, Judaism has nothing to do with a religion. It's an ethnic group. Okay, fine, that's that's what they say. Um, Now, in 1988, George Herbert Walker Bush, George W. Bush's dad, um, he was Reagan's vice president. Reagan was uh, president in 1980 to 88. And uh, uh, in the 1988 Republican primary, um, George Herbert Walker Bush ran and, of course, ultimately won the primary and was the candidate and won the election. Um, but someone who ran against him was a friend of mine, Pat Robertson, of the Christian Broadcasting Network and the founder of Regent University. I think his father was quite a distinguished senator from Virginia many years ago. Uh, but at any rate, Pat Robertson had run in the primaries uh, to become the uh, the Republican um, candidate for president. He lost uh, fairly early during the primary process. And, you know, he had built a very viable um, voter registration organization. He'd built a very viable campaign, and he didn't want to just let it peter out to nothing. So he turned it into the Christian Coalition. And uh, within a, sh- a few years, short number of years, it had nearly two million members. This became a very exciting organization. There was a friend of mine at the time called Ralph Reed, very brilliant guy who was working for college Republicans and um, doing a lot of very, very solid work in terms of younger people's involvement in conservative politics. And um, Pat Robertson hired Ralph Reed. I'm going to say, I'm thinking 1989, right? Some About 1989. He uh, hired him to... Um, 
to build and run Christian Coalition. And for the next number of years, that's exactly what Ralph did. He was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, He was extremely effective. He was smart. He handled the media very well. Uh, Ralph had become a Christian about, I'm going to say about five years earlier, something like that and was 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 serious and uh, and we were friendly and and it was again this this opportunity that i i had to see that ralph and i agreed on so many things you know perhaps not in theological details obviously but in terms of political outlook in terms of religious values in terms of judeo christian principles uh, we agreed on so much and i agreed with him so much more than i i would have shall we say, with a, uh, a reformed Jewish man who was a professor at a, at a university, all right? We, with him, I'd have very little in the way of shared values, very little. Um, I'm trying to think what we'd have, you know, maybe that baby Jewish boys should be circumcised. That may be the only thing we could agree on. Um, so um, by 1995, about six or 7,000 people were coming to Christian Coalition's annual uh, convention in Washington, D.C. every year. And uh, Ralph asked me that year to come and speak for the convention. And I laughed and I said to him, Ralph, thanks for the compliment, but uh, what about the word Christian in Christian Coalition are you not getting? And he obviously said, no, I think, I think people would really like to hear from you. I was dumbfounded. You've got to, you know, we're, we're going back, this is 1995. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot. And altogether, uh, the, the mutual awareness that exists today between conservatively minded Jews and Christians didn't exist. Uh, that was largely... Um, what it was that uh, we started the American Alliance to do. So I I accepted, and um, I will never forget. Um, I was in the I, I was in backstage, and I I heard Ralph um, announce me from the podium as the next speaker, friend of his, etc. etc. And so I stepped out onto the stage, and there was a lot of media there. Uh, there was a lot of TV, and it, it sort of made it into the media, like the New York Times ran an article about me speaking for Christian Coalition, and they were taking a very cynical view. Uh, the Christians are just trying to mask their anti-Semitism, etc., etc. You know the New York Times already. And I stepped onto the podium, and I could, you know, I could sense there was a huge audience, and I, the, the lights were glaring, and it was very hard to see very much, but... Um, I, there was a long sustained applause, and, and then it finally died down. And I said, uh, I would like you all to know the four words my grandfather would say to me if he knew that I was in a room with 6,000 Christians. And I paused until the room went so quiet you could have heard a pin drop. And then I leaned forward to the microphone and I yelled, run for your life well the place absolutely just cascaded into complete hysterics uh, the, the the laughter was so long and so sustained finally i was able to continue and i said uh, everything is different today uh, after two thousand years of uh, bitterness and sometimes uh, pain and hostility 
right now Israel's dearest friends and strongest and most ardent advocates are you people right here in this room. And uh, conversely, I said, among um, Jews who are observant of the Torah, they recognize you as the friends you are at this small blip on the radar screen of history. And um, I uh, ended up, uh, it went very well. I was invited back for the next convention the year later and the one after that. And I spoke for a number of them. And then I spoke for a number of state Christian coalition events. I spoke in uh, South Carolina, in Texas. I spoke in Florida, California, uh, North Carolina, uh, Illinois. I spoke in a number of places. And so I, I got to know the folks of Christian Coalition really well. And uh, when they got to know me well enough to know that I wasn't thin-skinned and I wasn't going to take offense at uh, sincerely asked questions, they, they, they asked me a lot of questions. The second most frequent question I was asked is, how come Jews are so good with money? And I promised them, I said, I will answer that in due course. I didn't know that it would take me that long before I wrote Thou Shall Prosper and Business Secrets from the Bible. But the, that was the second most frequent question. The number one question that people asked me in those days, um, once they felt comfortable asking me things, the most frequent question they asked me was, why are Jews so liberal? Why is it that Jews stand for everything that is contradictory to scriptural values? And I said to them, um, it's a long answer, and I promise you I will answer it. And uh, I said, by uh, the time we meet here again next year, I will have it. And sure enough, uh, I wrote America's Real War, and the subtitle is An Orthodox Rabbi Insists that Judeo-Christian values are vital for our nation's survival. And, um, and I, I dealt with uh, a lot of things that they'd never heard written or spoken about by a Jew before. For instance, I made the point that in the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 7, it has the following wording. If any bill shall not be returned by the president within 10 days, Sundays accepted, after it shall have been presented to him, etc., etc. And I said, why Sundays accepted? Right? It could have said the weekend. No. Sundays accepted because these were Christians and, um, and, and were writing as Christians. And so Sunday was accepted for the same reason that mail didn't get delivered on Sunday. It's the same reason mail doesn't get delivered in Israel on Saturday. That's because Israel is a Jewish country. And so in America, mail doesn't get delivered on Sunday, and the Constitution says Sunday is accepted because it is a Christian country. <laughs> That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now, because I want to um, suggest and encourage that you go to our website and you get yourself a copy of the newly republished America's Real War, and because it is filled with principles that apply as clearly now as they did when I wrote it, the book will be, I think, a very valuable addition to your bookshelf and a valuable addition to that fourth quadrant 
of human motivation that I've often spoken about, spiritual, spiritual. In other words, there's nothing tangible that the world is giving you, and you don't need it in order to survive biologically. And that is wisdom and understanding. That is the knowledge that you're living in a world where things make sense, provided you know the permanent principles. And that's the pleasure that a book like America's Real War gives you. Listen to this. Uh, This is from page 96. For almost 200 years, America functioned, grew, and prospered under this tacit agreement. America was a religious country without demanding allegiance to any specific church. Congress opened with a prayer and still does and the Ten Commandments were posted on courtroom and schoolroom walls. God was frequently invoked in presidential speeches and community events. The assumption was that Americans were one nation under God. Not only did religion in general have a respected place in our nation's affairs, but Christianity in particular was a positive undercurrent. But today one hears over and over that religion, especially Christianity, must be kept out of public policy, and that this was the intent of our ancestors. Supporting this revisionist position is a report of the American Jewish Committee dated September 9, 1996, and I quote it, We must continue to emphasize pluralism as a basic value of America, to which the American Jewish Committee is dedicated, and to remind Americans of their history on these issues. The religious right may be convincing people that this country was founded on religious principles and that the founders intended to create a Christian nation since the religious rightists keep saying that. We must continue to publicize our view of American history and make it relevant to people today. Okay, that's, that's a quote. And back to me now, the majority of liberal policy groups, politicians and pundits in this country would probably agree with that statement. Others, myself included, would say exactly the opposite. Allow me to counter the above with what I believe to be a more historically correct statement. Quote, We must continue to emphasize religion as a basic value of America, to which we are dedicated, and to remind Americans of their history on these issues. The secularists may be convincing people that this country was founded on pluralistic principles and that the founders intended to create a secular nation since the liberals keep saying that. We must continue to publicize our view of American history and make it relevant to people today. Questions of pure opinion or belief, because they are not measurable, rarely lead to resolution. We might not be able to find a resolution. And um, and so it goes on towards the end of that chapter. So that that gives you a, an idea, I think. And and by the way, uh, if you feel led in your heart to support the work of the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, um, please do so. AAJC.org. AAJC. American Alliance of Jews and Christians. AAJC.org and uh, make a donation of whatever size is comfortable for you, whatever size you feel called upon to support the the work that we do in the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. Um, Let me read from a chapter entitled Culture War. Most Americans, oblivious to the approaching crisis, regarded the conservative Christian movement as something that suddenly exploded onto the national stage. Not surprisingly, an uproar erupted when the words culture war were spoken at the 1992 Republican Convention. After all, 
American citizens profess many different faiths, come from diverse backgrounds, and have two major opposing political parties. But surely we respect each other. Why use fighting words? Why suggest that a war exists between groups of citizens in our country? I believe that understanding this phrase, culture war, is imperative for the restoration of our society. When the Civil War was fought in the 19th century, the individuals participating were not enemies. Often they were neighbors and cousins. In more than one instance, they were brothers. On both sides, fought upright, valiant soldiers. However, they had reached a point where their conflicting beliefs could no longer coexist in one country. A terrible war ensued, but at the end of the fighting, one idea again prevailed. Once again, we were one country. This time, the culture war, thankfully, is not a bloody one. It is not a war that will be fought with bullets. It is a war that is being fought with ballots. That makes it no less a war that will, in the end, yield a victor and a loser. The two ideas struggling for supremacy in society today cannot coexist. One needs to dominate. What are these two ideas? Reduced to their simplest elements, one idea claims that public adherence to biblical values and acceptance of traditional godly direction are essential for the continued existence of this country. The opposing view is that such religion while perhaps laudable for individuals, is an impediment to progress in the public arena. What do I believe is meant by the phrase culture war? Author Russell Kirk was once asked the source of humankind's many cultures. His reply was that they originally came from cults. While the word cult has now taken on a negative connotation, it originally meant a joining together for worship that is, the attempt of people to commune with a transcendent power. Therefore, when we say that people are unified by a common culture, what we really mean is that they share the same general view of God and His expectations. Conversely, when we speak of a culture war, we are referring to a great rift over the issue of God. What does this have to do with most Americans? The role of God in society is similar to that of sewers, telephone lines, gas pipes, and electrical cables. We don't see them running invisibly beneath our street. We seldom even think about them. However, their sudden removal would dramatically and horribly impact our lives. Likewise, we never used to think about the invisible structure of morality and logic that lay reassuringly beneath our culture, the God-centric view of the world. Now, however, it is being ripped up. One of the most profound truths about America as we approach the end of the 20th century is that we are no longer one nation under God. We are really two separate nations with two distinct and incompatible moral visions. We are two nations occupying the same piece of real estate and engaged in a giant cultural tug-of-war for that real estate. In the last few elections, some politicians attempted to use this concept of two Americas to divide us into two warring groups. Blacks were pitted against whites, rich against poor, Democrats against Republicans, Christians against Jews, consumers against capitalists, men against women. The truth is, that different people do have different ideas of how America should look, 
but it is a lot simpler than a complicated smorgasbord of competing interests. I believe there are just two basic competing visions for America, which encompass all the various special interest groups. The two views can best be characterized as either support for or opposition to Judeo-Christian morality playing a role in American public life. The crucial point I want to make here is that both sides attract blacks and whites, rich and poor, Democrats and Republicans, Christians and Jews, and men and women. It is important to note that members of religious, ethnic, and gender groups unite with those of varying religious, ethnic, and gender groups despite media attempts to insist otherwise. Um, I'll just... Um, Heather Has Two Mommies is a book that attempted to inculcate first-grade students in New York City with the idea that lesbianism was acceptable. This was removed from the public schools by a coalition of Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. California's Proposition 227, English for the Children, was driven by the passion of Jewish conservative Ronans and passed overwhelmingly by Californians of every race, color, religion, and socioeconomic background. Bill Clinton was not, despite headlines to the contrary, elected because women lined up staunchly for him. Truth be told, married and unmarried women differed dramatically in their voting patterns, even more than males and females did in theirs. Uh, You know, I'd like to read you a little bit more from page 99. Listen to this. A visitor to America comparing two history textbooks, one from the 1940s and one from the 1990s, concerning the pilgrims and Thanksgiving, would probably have difficulty realizing that the same people and observance were being discussed. Fortunately, as we near the year 2000, okay, you see, um, there is no need to guess what was in the mind of the pilgrims as they landed in a new world. They bequeathed us a written document, the Mayflower Compact, signed just prior to disembarking their ships on November the 11th, 1620. The compact reads in part, In the name of God, amen, we whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony. That was the Mayflower Compact, right? It is difficult to interpret that document as anything other than a Christian statement of purpose. Surely one would think that this document would form an integral part of school textbooks dealing with this period. In many instances, it sadly does not. There are other undisputed historical facts of the time, such as that Squanto, the Indian who guided the pilgrims through their first winter, was not simply a good pagan who happened to help, but was himself a believing Christian. There is no doubt, due to primary source material, that the first Thanksgiving was a day of gratitude to the Almighty, not, as is often taught today, gratitude to the Indians. Uh, Can you believe that I wrote this 20 years ago? This is all relevant to today. Sorry, back onwards. Yet in the recommended Washington State Teacher's Guide for Teaching About Thanksgiving, the historical facts are set aside in favor of secular revisionism. The problem is not unique to any one state. 
1995, the National Education Association passed a resolution celebrating diversity in Thanksgiving. There is a school district that teaches children an Indian chant for Thanksgiving, not minding that the Indians who used this chant lived nowhere near the East Coast in the 1600s. It is one thing for a Disney movie to leave out the fact that Pocahontas converted to Christianity. It is another thing for our schools to neglect that part of our life. It seems that we would rather teach lies to our children than acknowledge the deeply Christian roots of the settlement of this country. Because we Jews loudly loathe attempts to revise Jewish history, we ought to be among those denouncing attempts at rewriting American history. If it is wrong to deny the Holocaust, surely it is also wrong to deny Christianity's role in the founding of America. Uh, friends, just uh, let me just add one thing here. If any of you who are not Jewish would have made that statement, right? If it is wrong to deny the Holocaust, surely it is wrong to also deny Christianity's role in the founding of America. You make that statement and you would probably be attacked as a bigot and as an anti-Semite. But if you hold this book in your hand and you quote Rabbi Daniel Lappin saying, if it is wrong to deny the Holocaust, surely it is also wrong to deny Christianity's role in the founding of America. Now you have the basis of a serious conversation with the possible potential of persuading somebody. Uh, I'm just saying this book is a very useful tool, and I truly want it in as many hands as possible, as quickly as possible, because I do believe that with this book as a tool, your circle of influence can expand both in numbers and also in effectiveness. Let me just go a little bit further. A case might be made that the observance of Thanksgiving denies the native Indians their heritage and that more citizens today are descended from later immigrants than from those on the Mayflower. Perhaps Thanksgiving should be replaced with a new holiday that would celebrate the diversity of this country. In rebuttal, I would argue the importance of not cutting ourselves off from our roots that cancelling Thanksgiving would be a denial of a key event in our history. We could have an honest debate. But what has happened is insupportable. Those who have been given the job of educating our children have on their own decided that it is imperative to teach a historical event inaccurately, just as in the old Soviet Union, where all inventions were credited to the Soviets, no matter where they actually originated, a higher cause than truth is now the force behind our history textbooks. I agree with the liberal claim that a lot of indoctrination is going on. I just disagree on who's doing it. Granted, when the Constitution was signed more than a hundred years after the Pilgrims landed, federal documents did not have the same level of focus on Christianity as in the early 1600s. There was not the same focus on being loyal subjects of the king either. Yet again, we have no shortage of papers letting us know what the leaders of the American Revolution were thinking. It is hard to find pluralism in the words of John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. And here's what he said. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Not bad, right? From the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. 
The much-vaunted pluralism that you keep hearing about from liberals seems to be also lacking when Patrick Henry, writing in the Virginia Bill of Rights dated June the 12th, 1776, declared, All men are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion according to the dictates of conscience, and that it is the mutual duty of all to practice Christian forbearance, love, and charity towards each other. The fact that statements of founding fathers such as John Adams, George Washington, or Patrick Henry have been expunged from our our most commonly used history textbooks does not mean that they were not said or that they do not reflect what was truly in the minds of those men as they agreed upon the Constitution. In 1787, the the year the Constitution was officially approved by Congress, the Northwest Ordinance was approved by the same body. Article 3 of that ordinance states, Religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. It is not an unreasonable leap to propose that a solid case for religious instruction in school is is present in that document. Likewise, George Washington's Farewell Address of 1796 deals with the issue of religion. He says, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principles. Um, It's it's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Um, Chapter 16 is entitled, Do We Really Agree That Anything That Anyone Defines As His Religion must be accorded equal status in America? It's a very important question, and I explain that in that chapter. I also go to lengths to point out that there is a reason why the left is trying to disconnect us from the founding of the country. And I'll give an example, and i say, what would happen to me? Let's imagine that I have been the victim of a colossal hoax all my life, and that I'm now presented with incontrovertible evidence that my late father was not a distinguished and scholarly rabbi. No! Turns out he was a vagrant with a long criminal record. Does this make a difference to my life? Yes, it does. A huge difference. It shakes the very foundations of my being, because so much of my life I've based on things he told me. Similarly, if we can shake the faith of America's schoolchildren in the Founding Fathers, if we can best of all make them either ignorant of the Founding Fathers or believing the Founding Fathers to be evil people whose entire lives can be wrapped up in one simple phrase, racist slave owners. And if we can establish that that is the true nature of our Founding Fathers, it makes a huge difference, and it makes their job of transforming this country into a socialist paradise that much easier, I'm afraid. I certainly don't want to sound self-congratulatory or or mystical even, but uh, I've often told people that uh, I had incredible divine assistance writing this book, and uh, and I believe that to be true. Uh, I I read the book now, and I say... I was I was in another zone when I was writing this, and I remember very clearly. And that is why it is that uh, I, I read sections of this, and I think to myself, gosh, 
I could have written this yesterday. It's as true now as it was then, because the book is based on these permanent principles I've been discussing. Um, let's uh, let's listen to this. I'm picking up in the middle of a chapter. <clears throat> um, as with any breakdown of traditional discipline, the resultant disorder often turns against the tradition destroyers themselves. The United States in the 1990s has seen crime gain and hold first place among the issues of public concern. <laughs> yeah, hello. By removing traditional moral principles from the criminal justice system, liberalism spawned a crime wave that has affected at least one relative or friend of the vast majority of American voters. By also inculcating a sentimentalist spirit in these voters, liberals gave every friend or relative of a crime victim not merely a sense that the system has ill-served him, but genuine moral outrage that society had failed in the most important respect. This indignation is now turning against the liberals responsible for creating it. Welcome President Trump, right? Much to their surprise. As I write, news reports proclaim that some cities which have made a conscientious effort to return to individual accountability and moral values have seen dramatic reversals in their rates of crime. Even New York City has witnessed such positive changes. One way works, the other does not. Why are we so hesitant to go with the one that does? For their part, the traditionalists in society failed to recognize the underlying unifying principles in the liberal trend. They mistook the new policies as a harmless experiment that stood a reasonable chance of success. Had they understood that the modernists' intention was, in the words of English critic, high priest of liberalism, Lionel Trilling, quote, to subvert the classic Jewish, Christian, and natural virtues, to insinuate that what Jews and Christians have for centuries called sin is actually a high form of liberation, they would surely have rebelled. And by the way, that is a quote that you want to be able to quote from this book, that Lionel Trilling was Jewish. He was a professor of literature at Columbia University in the 50s. And as the 60s arrived, he joined the revolutionaries and showed that the project of modernism was to turn sins into virtues. Back to the book. Before the Bible gets past its third chapter, it makes clear that God created man in his image and therefore imbued him with a power of free choice. The Judeo-Christian perspective claims that man has the ability to choose between good and evil and is therefore accountable for all his actions. Since secularists maintain that man is the result of millions of random arrangements of amino acid molecules, naturally it would be presumptuous to expect the talking baboon to be able to determine the difference between good and evil. After all, non-talking baboons of the common variety also occasionally rape and kill, and when they do, it is invariably an environmental factor, such as overcrowding that is to blame. In the, October 19, in the October 20th, 1998 issue of USA Today, we are informed of something religious America has known for decades. Guess what? A child's chance of dying from abuse or neglect are eight times higher when a boyfriend of the mother lives in the home. Wow! Amazing! 
Children raised by mothers and fathers who remain married to one another have better lives than children of mothers and fathers who divorce and fornicate? How old-fashioned! But USA Today goes much further. It provides an explanation for this discovery. Do you think this statistic endorses traditional morality? You poor misguided simpleton. Of course not. Richard Gellies, a family violence specialist at the University of Pennsylvania, notes that in some primate tribes, killing the offspring of the female he is going to mate with is one of the first things a newly dominant male does. So it isn't nice to do, but it is certainly understandable. It is natural. Monkeys do it. All the family violence specialists in the country will never bring about the domestic tranquility found in the ordinary Bible-believing Jewish or Christian home. Furthermore, as long as family violence specialists derive their wisdom from the basic secular assumption that we are more like apes than we are like angels, they do society more harm than good. Um, Here is from a chapter on marriage. Yes, I believe women might come up with the idea of marriage. However, since marriage is far more in the best interest of women than of men, why should men agree? Indeed, they should not, which is exactly why we find in some of the less wholesome corners of American society, where secular liberalism has most left its mark, there is no marriage. Why should men agree to the restrictions of marriage? First of all, renouncing the entire field of nubile and available females and remaining exclusively loyal to only one woman is against the sexual instinct. It is also against the genetic interests of men who best serve the call of their genes by impregnating as many women as possible. That would be the natural way. If we are nothing but material beings similar to animals, marrying and remaining loyal to only one woman makes as little sense for human males as it makes for male dogs. Of course, one of the most important sections of the book is why are Jews so liberal? And that section also goes in depth towards explaining why it is that people who are secular liberals are so fervent and so absolutely sure that those who disagree with them are not merely civilly disagreeing, but those that disagree with them are evil, terrible human beings. And so all of that is is covered in the section in which I explain how it is that liberalism is not just a political doctrine, but it is an entire belief system. <clears throat> and um, uh, here on page 209, yeah, it's a, it's a big book, and there's, there's a lot of information here. Uh, it's called America's Real War. And here's a chapter entitled, Is History Repeating Itself? Somehow, liberating ourselves from the confines of religion has not delivered the paradise we were promised. Historian Will Durant, in a book called A History of Roman Civilization, points out some fascinating elements of the collapse of the once great, seemingly invincible Roman Empire. Towards the end of its horrifying descent into oblivion, it was briefly propped up by a return to those values that endure. It was too late. Secularism was so entrenched that the effort to instill sanity was soon rejected by the intelligentsia. Still, the experiment shows us that decline can be halted if the will is really there. I believe that America's religious conservatives 
possess both the vision and the will. Although Rome soon after became a footnote to history, America can step back from the brink and endure. In the 3rd century, Emperor Marcus Aurelius Severus Alexander made the Roman Empire flourish and prosper for the last time. He recommended that the Roman people embrace and live by the morals of the Jews and the Christians. He frequently quoted the Judeo-Christian council, What you do not wish a man to do to you, do not do to him. And he had it engraved on the walls of his palace and on many public buildings. He assumed a severe censorship over public morals and ordered the arrest of prostitutes and the deportation of homosexuals. He reduced taxes, forced down interest rates, and loaned money to the poor to enable them to purchase and own land. He did not last very long. His enemies derisively referred to him as head of the synagogue, and soon the majority of the industrial establishments in Italy were brought under the control of the state. Butchers, bakers, masons, builders, glassblowers, ironworkers, and engravers were all ruled by detailed government regulations. Derision of morality, excessive government regulation, sounds like yesterday's headlines, doesn't it? But it all happened 1,700 years ago to the greatest empire in world history, an empire which had just abandoned principles of social organization congruent with Judeo-Christian thought. And so that is a little bit of a, of a quick overview of a book that I truly, as I say, I believe I wrote it with God's help. Um, I must tell you that uh, I, I reread it now, and I, I cannot believe it. Uh, it is so prescient, so relevant, so filled with explanations that help one understand exactly what's going on right now. Um, it's uh, it, it was an it, it, an extraordinary experience to um, to write it. Uh, it then went into um, uh, it eventually went into a being out of print, and I approached the publishers and asked if they would give the rights back to me since they're no longer publishing it. And uh, we had a very interesting uh, series of uh, discussions. And um, the the publisher is the giant uh, Bertelsmann uh, German publishing colossus. And uh, I have to tell you that they were incredibly decent. Um, they did. They, they gave it back to me. And uh, that has enabled us to make the book available. And over the years, so many of you have asked me about America's Real War. And uh, so many of you have inquired as to how you can get it, that it's just a real pleasure to be able to tell you that um, it has just been republished. Um, it's been corrected. There were every now and then there were typos and errors in the original edition. All of that has been repaired and it is waiting for you as a truly valuable piece of ordnance in your munitions case. That's right. It's intellectual ammunition. Um, when you talk to your family members, you might be talking to your children. Uh, when you talk to uh, co-workers, friends, uh, extended family. But particularly at this time when there are uh, 
uh, difficulties among people who are friends or family members and who share a different, who have different political outlooks, um, it's really helpful to be able to have something that helps you explain the underlying and unifying principles that lie behind how you view the world. So please go along to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, make us both happy, and acquire your copy of America's Real War. You can get it as an uh, electronic version, which you can get downloaded right away. You can have it sent to you, whatever you prefer. But all of that is at rabbidaniellappin.com. And that's also the address where you can write to us. Uh, you go to the About Us page and click on Contact Us, and I will see your email. So that's also at rabbidaniellappin.com. And finally, uh, you can also look at back editions of Thought Tools, of Susan's Musings, of Ask the Rabbi. And we've had several really interesting questions that we've tackled in the last uh, few weeks. So all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Hope that you enjoy it. And I know that your copy of America's Real War will occupy a proud and privileged place on your family's bookshelf. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, spreading word of the show. Uh, we've had people from uh, Singapore lately, from a number of other countries. Thanks for letting me know where you are listening from. I always appreciate that. And uh, thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show. Bye being a happy warrior. Yeah, I'm not saying being a happy warrior Happy warrior is easy for anybody, no, but it is incredibly rewarding. And so thanks for being part of our little group of happy warriors. Until next week, I wish you a week of fulfillment and happiness with your relationships, with your friends, with your family, with your God, with your finances, and with your physical fitness as well. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.